Melanin and me, exploring the black woman's experiences in Britain. Hey lovely ladies, welcome back to Melanin and me. Before we dive into today's episode, we want to remind you how you can stay up to date with our latest content. We'll release episode every Thursday, so make sure to subscribe to Melanin and me on your preferred podcast platform so that you don't miss out on any episodes. You can also follow our inspiring content on social media by searching melanin underscore and underscore me on Instagram or find us on Facebook at melanin and me UK. If you felt empowered or motivated from any of our episodes, we love to hear it. So feel free to contact us by emailing melaninandme at yahoo.com or slide on in on our DMs on our social accounts. Don't forget to share some love, drop us a review and share with any of your fellow queens who might be uplifted by tuning into Melanin and Me. For now, enjoy today's episode. Hello lovely ladies and welcome back to another episode of Melanin and Me and today we have a fabulous guest with us, Miss Dr. Bemi Sola David West, obstetrician, I'm hoping I said that right, and gynecologist in Oxford Deanery. And she's also a clinical teaching fellow at Oxford University. I'm sorry, but that's a lot to get out in one one go because you are incredible, Bevy. Welcome to Melanin and Me. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited um, to be able to talk to you guys this evening. Yeah, so we titles, which means so many experiences to share with us. We're really looking forward to this conversation, actually. We really are. And for like health, health and wellness, obviously being one of our key things, you know, obviously we've got yourself and um, kind of a series of different people who are working in the NHS and from, you know, kind of clinical practice who are going to share some really um, important information on some really uh, crucial topics. And obviously today we'll get into talking a little bit more about your specific topic. But before we do dive in, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so, um, as you said, I'm an obstetrician gynaecologist. So, um, I've been a doctor qualified since um, 2012. Um, and so, at that time, when you qualify, you're just like a generalist. Um, but for a long time, I thought um, what specialty I wanted to kind of go into. And um, I decided quite early on I really wanted to do women's health. Um, I thought this is a really, really important part of. Um, medicine where I could really kind of get behind and be passionate about um, as a bit of a feminist so um, and um, and I think as well when I looked at kind of like maternal mortality in the world and what women were dying of um, this for the most part was really preventable stuff um, and uh, it was just lack of obstetric emergency obstetric care that was basically it Um, women couldn't get to experts in time and that's why they died Um, and I just thought what a fantastic skill set to have um, if I can train be trained to do it um, to deliver you know emergency you know you know babies in an emergency um, with forceps or do a cesarean all these kind of things um, to save both mother and, and baby's lives I just thought what a great skill to have um, that I could use here, but also can go overseas with um, and help. So um, I just thought it's, and I still think it's a fantastic specialty. 
it's mind blowing to a certain degree because I remember reading a start at the start of the year um, in 2021, which said like um, black women in the UK are four, more, four times more likely to die in pregnancy or childbirth than yes. white counterpart. And I was like, whoa, that is really scary. And then obviously my sister um, gave birth in April and right. it was a really, really, for me, especially, I never really voiced it. It was just internal anxiety that I had. Like, what if something right. goes wrong and they don't pick it up? What if something goes wrong and they're not too sure, like, what's going on? It's always, always really anxious when Black women tell me that they're pregnant. It is, it is. And um, it's really difficult, actually. So, I mean, the Embrace and Port has come out again and I mean it's slightly improved it was five times more it's now four times more so slight improvement but essentially it's really complex and we still don't know why it is that women black women Asian women um, are dying at a higher rate um, compared mm-hmm. to their white counterparts we know there is probably an element of racism in there mm-hmm. um, if not kind of on a personal level but maybe institutional level and just mm-hmm. the way the NHS is set up, um, you know, the care is very Eurocentric. Does mm-hmm. that mean, you know, can every Black and Asian woman maybe accessing that care, do we access it in the same way? Mm-hmm. Um, is there trust between um, patients and their doctors if they don't look like them? Is there a kind of lack of trust, mm-hmm. um, lack of understanding of the different mm-hmm. cultures? So I think that there's a lot of complex factors at play. Mm. Um, what the, the college has called like a constellation of um, biases that mm. kind of all come together that lead to such poor outcomes. Mm. Um, but there's definitely the, the, the positive things. There's a lot of work going on in the background um, mm. to try and tackle these inequalities. The college had read the Royal College of Obstetrician and Gynecology. So working really hard mm. Um to try to try and narrow this gap and to find out why exactly um, these inequalities exist. So mm. I am hopeful, and we're talking more about it. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, I think I think hopefully it can only get better. I mm. mean, we've got people like you taking on the profession, so yeah, that's the kind of steps that we want to see. Actually, yeah. it was um, one of our previous episodes we had. Um, safe spaces for black women we had um dr Layla hussein who is a real um advocate for talking about and opening up the conversation about fgm and that you know that led to us um talking about how that has an impact on pregnancy because actually if people if no people who are (coughs) doctors who are you know involved in that labor process they're not aware they don't understand you know what impact that can have on the actual delivery that's going to have a massive impact right so oh, yeah. that's just one that's just one small thing which we tend to see in you know whether it's african culture or it's it's more predominant in sort of black community so yeah. already that's that's just one instance one, one example aspect. yeah it, it's increasing like i think the sensitivity around that topic um i think some people find it difficult um to talk about it approach the issue with their patients and then they kind of maybe find a situation where very late on in the pregnancy we're finding out that someone has FGM so I think it's it's about opening up um, you know discussion and making sure that actually we're doing what's safe for our patients all the time so we are having these discussions and and educating them as well Um, you know that's a really big thing that I'm 
really passionate about is educating um, all women, but in particular um, women of colour, um, about their choices mm-hmm. and what the options are. Um, for me, as an obstetrician, my job is always to tell you what the options are. Mm. And I will always have a recommendation for you for what I think is the safest thing for you to do in your pregnancy. Um, but the choice is always yours. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you want to go and do something completely opposite to what I'm suggesting, that's absolutely fine, as long as you know what the risks are. And so that that's what we need to be moving towards. And we are moving more towards that, um, you know, making sure that our patients are more involved, patient centred in all decision making um, so that they can make whatever choice they they feel is, is best for them. So bring, taking that autonomy back to the patient. Mm, it's really, really, that's really positive to hear. Um, one thing that we never asked, I know you've said you're an obstetrician, is that how you say yes, it? Yeah, um, yes. And a gynecologist. gynecologist break yeah. those two terms down in terms of what is it specifically that you do do? Because we need yes. to have an overall understanding of what is it that um, that you do and what your job entails. So if you could do that sure. for us, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, sure. So yeah, so most people know what a gynecologist is. Um, so we're basically dealing with the whole genital tract. So all the way from your vulva, all the way up to your ovaries in the, you know, so your, your vagina, your uterus, the tubes, the ovaries. So gynecologist deals with all conditions related to the genital uterine tract basically um so that's all your like sexually transmitted infections your smears any cancers related to you know the the uterus your womb um your ovaries that's all gynecology Mm -hmm. um whereas obstetrics is everything related to pregnancy Mm. um so that's how we divide ourselves so i mean i do both Mm -hmm. um so I'll be kind of one day I could be scanning patients in their pregnancy, being on labor ward, delivering their baby. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I might be assisting in an operation to remove wow. an ovarian cancer. So wow. we do both. We do so, both on a daily basis. Yeah. So what you're telling us is that you're... You from, from birth yeah. as a woman, I will see you right up to the very end. Wow. <laughs> wow. incredible so what you're telling us is that you are elite elite level you're not just a gynecologist yeah and I can't even say it I can't (laughs) I know no one can say the word honestly no one knows they usually just say gynecologist (laughs) now that's incredible thank you very much for that insight that is really really um incredible like what you do I can't even like fathom the amount of um, energy and time that you've put into this craft to get you to where you are. I think you said you graduated in 2012. Yeah, so you do two years, yeah, as a foundation doctor. And then to be an obstetrician and gynecologist, it takes another seven years. Wow. To be a consultant. And that's taken even longer because I've had two babies in that time. And I worked... Did you deliver um, your own baby then? No. (laughs) I actually had two vaginal deliveries, so... (laughs) <laughs> I, I I actually had my midwives de- deliver me, so I'm very much about normal birth, normalising birth. I had two vaginal deliveries on the midwife-led centre, uh, birthing centre, so I didn't go anywhere near my obstetricians, actually. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> you were like, I got this. I got this. I, I know what I'm doing here, guys. I absolutely trusted the midwives to deliver my babies. Um, but yeah, because I work part time as well. So I, I, it takes a little longer because I'm not in as much. But um, yeah, so it's a long process, but I'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. By God's will, we will. We will. Yeah, exactly. So, Bemi, today we are obviously discussing sexual health and contraception with you. From your perspective and experience, what do you find are the most common challenges that women tend to face in this area? Like, are there any really common problems that tend to come up? I think the issue is people don't actually know what choices there are out there. Um, Mm. I don't think it's talked enough about. Um, Women just don't know what's available to them. And I think once they've heard that maybe one type of contraception doesn't work for a friend, then I think they just shut down the whole conversation about contraception. Mm -hmm. Um, There are so many types there on the market for you to trial with, see what works for you, what your body agrees with. And if it doesn't, there's still many other things. And so I think that's it, just having more conversation about what is there available for you and what resources are there available for you, including your GP. Your GP is a really good resource to go and have a really good chat about um, what contraception is available. But as well as that, there's lots of websites and, you know, the NHS website is really good for that. I think like I watched a programme a little while ago about contraception and it really hit home with me. And it, it actually was the the reason why I changed my contraception actually so I've been on the pill for years since I was 14 okay. and it showed the there were a lot of studies done I think it was particularly in I want to say Norway or Holland it was one of the two and it was looking at the kind of impact on your mental health of consuming the pill over a long period of time and interestingly it was something I've never really thought about because you know sometimes you kind of get told or you go to maybe a GP and you talk about discuss the options because there's obviously so many different types of pill kind of some of the physical side effects of actually you know you might find that um parts of your body are maybe a bit more tender or maybe you're more fatigued or anything like that and it really surprised me because it actually made me reflect a lot on the fact that I've kind of I haven't hadn't actually done that much research it was just Mm -hmm. kind of something that as you say, you kind of talk to friends, particularly when you're that at that age or you get told about maybe one thing, you get given yeah. one option or what's more accessible or maybe what's more talked about and you just go with it. And I think it's interesting because I don't know, I, I feel like maybe, and you might have a perspective on this, Ray, as a teacher, mm. I don't know whether we got enough of that in school because mm. we kind of touched on I always remember the femidom, which I don't even. Oh yes, the randomly like I just remember that being a thing. Like, I think because it was just a funny name. Yeah, like <laughs> it, that, I just when I think about like like your edu- sexual education, I just remember putting a condom on a banana and a yeah. femidom. That's all I remember. But all Sounds that the array of yeah, like the array of options, I just didn't I didn't think was out there. So, and yeah. other things, for instance, I know um, some people have said to me. Um, oh, I can't take the pill because um, such and such in my family had breast cancer. And that's correct for certain types of pills. So we we would advise you don't take estrogen-containing pills, so the combined pill, if there's a strong family history of um, breast, ovarian cancer. 
but that doesn't mean you can't take progesterone only pills so as long as there's no estrogen added estrogen on it we would advise that or recommend it as another form of contraception so when I was talking to someone they didn't even realize that there were two different types of pill they just heard the pill you can't have it if someone in the family's had cancer so that's just the, the lack of information that's out there and I think that lack of um, education, the lack of information starts off so young. So I remember my, my uh, one of my teacher friends, actually, in the last couple of weeks, we had a conversation. It was PSHE and they were looking up at sexual organs for year sevens mm-hmm. and like what different organs there are, how, like all these things. And she actually said that... Um, a day after they had that lesson, a parent wrote in to say that I don't want my child to um, take part in the lessons and she, the parent would like the child to be stood outside the lesson. And it's like, well, if we hold on, that child is got to know all these information. That's how we grow up to be miseducated and not knowing certain things. And we become gullible. So whatever a mm. friend says, that's what we take on. I mean, Gospel. I can draw from, mm. yeah, definitely. I can draw from my own experience. I never had that sex talk in my, ha- in my household. That was a bit of a taboo subject. Like everything yeah. I know sex-wise, I've had to teach it to myself, like go on the internet, explore a little bit more. Nobody ever sits you down and says, right. I actually remember vividly whenever I started my period, my mom was like, yep, this is it. You've got to stop rolling with boys because you'll get pregnant. Oh, period. And it's like, what? Tell me more, please. Like what is happening to my body? Is there some changes? But there was none of that conversation. It was more of Mm. just like, this is what's happening. You need to stop doing this. And that's it. There's no explanation behind it. And I think we need to step away from that old mentality. I think I want to say it's more African mentality because within African household, I've had so many experiences of this sex related, anything sexual related, sexual health. It's such a taboo, but I don't understand why. (laughs) No, I don't know why. Everyone knows everyone's at it. So, um, (laughs) It's actually you have to have that open dialogue, and not just from a uh, from a um, from a perspective of knowing, you know, like you said, what's going on with your body, and almost more from like even a safeguarding point of view. I think it's really important mm. to let children know very early on. So, like for me, like I'm trying as much as possible to actually name the bodily bodily parts to my daughter as they are, not like give them funny names yeah Um, you should say this is the vulva because then actually if you know god forbid something happens she will be able to name exactly where anyone was touching it inappropriate you know so i think it's really really important to name our all the bodily parts correctly um and not create that kind of negative view of sex Mm. um you know it's something that's to be enjoyed it's something that we have to do safely that's that's the important thing um and so we have to be having those conversations with our children you know for us we can do better than the generation before us and I think we just need to be aware of that having those conversations with our children with Mm. you know our younger maybe nieces nephews because actually if they're informed that's when sex is safe and then they're not going to be in situations where they're putting themselves at risk when they're doing things they're not even consenting to mm-hmm. um and they feel empowered to yeah, actually say yes. no this doesn't feel right for me and I'm going to step away so yeah. um it's, it's really important to have those because 
Otherwise, like you say, the most dangerous thing is that children go and learn their information through porn, which is completely unrealistic. And even not, you know, like 100% the... I, I imagine probably, and I'm just making a bit of an assumption here, but I imagine a lot more teenage boys are relying on on porn for, for that. But Absolutely. even just Google, Dr. Google, how many times have we, how many times have we Dr. Googled, especially over COVID period? And honestly, you can get yourself down a rabbit hole mm. and, you know, it's really, you know, the internet, you can put something out there and again, somebody can read that and take it for gospel. And yeah. it really is quite, quite worrying that the younger generation and older because let's face it you know Ray give your example you've had to basically self-teach and I'm sure that there are a number of people out there that have done exactly the same thing yeah and it's maybe not until there's something you've come across or some sort of challenge you've tried to kind of overcome or something that's not you felt or maybe this isn't quite right then you've gone out to seek that information and you know, we, I think, yeah, yeah, it's, we want, we want, we want people to be, we want women to be empowered in a proactive way, not in a reactive state as well. So, yeah, I feel like from my mom's perspective though. So if I was ever to sit her down and be like, why did it happen like that? I feel like she would um, reference religion. So in, in the Quran, it says that you don't have sex until you're married. And I do agree with that to a certain degree. However, there is the element of knowing your body and knowing Mm. what's going on with your body. So it's really important to have those conversations. So we're educated on our bodies as well. So it's not just about once I know about sex, I'm not going to go out and have sex. (laughs) Do you know what I I mean? Yeah. I know it's this this, um, assumption that more knowledge means, yeah, that you like go off and now go on some kind of rampage. You know, the, the thing is that actually it's about, it's actually safer because when a child is really informed about themselves knows themselves know what's kind of out there they know where the boundaries are mm-hmm. and I think they're actually better informed going into certain situations mm-hmm. because actually that conversation doesn't happen mm. that's where girls can find themselves in the situation where they've actually been coerced mm. into doing things that they weren't maybe consenting to Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why it's really important to have those conversations. So in terms of like advice then or help, so let's say you've got a young mom, um, she's got a teenager who, or a young child. Um, how, what advice would you give to that young mom as to how to have these conversation around sex, around sexual health? How do you do that with um, young ones then? Well, I mean, already, I mean, sex education is taught to an extent in in class. You can see what is kind of being covered in the curriculum. And as well as that, like I said, there's there's loads of resources out there for parents to there are like through storytelling, because also my big thing about sex as well for young girls um, and boys is this issue of safeguarding as well, because um, knowing what their body parts are called and making sure they know not to be like touched in certain places inappropriately so that's why I think it's really important to have those conversations mm-hmm. so there's lots of like books um that they can access um on the internet that can kind of give that information mm-hmm. um and so you know then I think if you like follow people on Instagram there's quite a few resources as well but you can talk to the child through through these books about that aspect of their the body and and then 
you can have conversations about sex in terms of like when whenever you feel it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially that this is something that happens between, um, you know, two people that love each other mm-hmm. um, and that these are ways to safeguard yourself, to make sure you're safe, make sure you're consenting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different things that can be done within it. And just, I think the big thing is always about consent for me. So mm. um, whatever you're doing, making sure that you're consenting and you can always say no, because that's another thing I think, I think as, as especially for girls, is that sometimes they find themselves in situations maybe with a guy, mm. it's going down that route. And then for some reason they feel they can't say no. Mm, they don't yeah. go any further. Um, and you can, if you're not comfortable, um, you can and that's that's another thing educating girls and boys about what consent is and you can stop at any point that you don't feel comfortable you can walk away from that and you don't need mm. to feel coerced into doing anything you don't want to do yeah but I find that being in education some of the barriers is the actual parents not right. knowing what how to deal with that situation so they don't know how to get that information out to their kids therefore they just shut completely out of it and that's not it, really it's hard is it yeah it's hard like as well when you talk about religion and and the role that plays because yeah. mm-hmm. again I'm, unfortunately it can shut down certain conversations like mm-hmm. it's just not talked about it's not even that um that people are saying anything wrong in it but it's just it's it's not even discussed and it's kind of the only kind of sex education that happens is basically abstinence which we know for the most part young boys and girls are not doing so you know turning a blind eye to something only makes it unsafe Mm. um so it's it's really difficult but what I would say is as a parent always say if you at least don't know what to say just tell your child, if you need to talk about sex or anything about it, I'm here to have that conversation with you. And just Mm. invite the conversation because then Mm. the child at least knows Mm -hmm. when they get to a point where they're happy to talk, Mm -hmm. that they at least know that their parents are ready to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Because not even inviting it, that's where children start doing things in secret and not seeking advice and then start, unsafe sex practices Mm. yeah you know just thinking about my own experience that's what that's one of the best things my mum she approached it in in that way just really open and just said you know like don't don't ever be afraid or don't feel ashamed to have that conversation and I think as you say it's it's a bit like anything you know if you're told not to do something Mm. a child is more likely to go against it and do the opposite right so and I guess just also as I was listening to you there, Bemi, like obviously the safeguarding thing is so important, especially now, you know, we've seen the whole Me Too movement at its peak. We see women coming out and talking about all of these things that we know women go through day by day, but mm. the confidence and the platform is now almost there. It still doesn't mean it's everybody feels comfortable in coming out and speaking about things that have happened, but you know, it's a lot more prevalent. People are starting to feel a bit more empowered to speak up. Mm. But actually, that to some degree, there's some sort of, you know, British element about this as well, that we don't want to, we don't want to talk about things 
in the same sense that we probably don't talk openly about money, we wouldn't talk openly about salaries or income or, you know, what money people have. It's it's just such a British thing that we don't, mm-hmm. we, there's certain topics that we just almost avoid. And mm-hmm. I think that does play a big part. And I guess it's then the, what, what do we do to break that cycle? Is that about trying to encourage parents to open that discussion and yeah is that is that the answer I I I think it is it's absolutely like anything and like I remember even I guess only very recently that people starting to talk more even about something like miscarriage and for me in my job Mm. it's a very very common thing so about we think about kind of one in four one in five women their pregnancies end in a miscarriage so that's pretty common and actually like for myself personally when I had a miscarriage and then I told my friend, oh, I've unfortunately had a miscarriage. And suddenly they were like, oh, I had one as well last year. Wow. They never told me at the time. Um, and it's, again, we just don't talk about certain things. Mm. But then when people, and especially like celebrities, like created platforms when they started talking more about it. Now we're finding that people are speaking up more about mm. their miscarriages, their stillbirths, you know, their pregnancy losses. And, and so this, it removes the shame. And then it's opened up discussion about, okay, how do we move forward? How do we try and reduce this happening to women? Yeah. And so I think the same thing has to be the case for sex education and contraception. I think, we, like I said, we all know everyone's doing it. And so I think people just need to be talking more about it amongst each other, but factually. And, and then people start making right decisions. So I think mm. it's just normalising the discussion of, around sex. Mm. And I'm not sure the generation before us will do that, but definitely we can. I mean, even to this age, I'm now, what, 29 years old. I can't imagine sitting down with my mom and having a conversation about sex because that's mm. never been a platform which was open since day dot. So now it does get a bit awkward, but luckily I've got sisters so we are able to have those conversations and we're able to be open be educational within our our little groups of siblings so it's really nice to have that I think that's where as well for kind of listeners tuning into this episode I think if you found yourself in a situation where you know you may think oh well I would expect to maybe have this conversation in the classroom or at home and that's just not happening is just looking elsewhere. So as Bemi, you've said about your GP is a great resource. So definitely tap into that. Also with your peers or people that you feel you can have trusted conversations with and or siblings. But also there's a lot of sexual health clinics. So for instance, you can access a lot of free services. Yes. And then most of them are just like walk in. You don't need to book an appointment. You can go in and, and again, they'll be able to sit down and really talk to you about all your contraception options, as well as, you know, like the morning after pill. A lot of people don't know much information about that. Mm. They're able to provide that service for you there as well. And it's a place, yeah, you can just start the conversation and they'll be able to probably point you in the right direction, some more resources. Yeah, well. I feel like I feel like with COVID though, I don't think that walk-in um, system is still running. I think you've got to book oh, right. appointments to go in. So yeah, just to right. So with, unfortunately, with COVID, yeah, it's just a few things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So probably is to limit the numbers of people going in. Yeah. But I think I definitely know that I accessed that service when I was younger. And one thing I would just say, the staff are so friendly. Going to any 
clinic or GP or doctors or whoever, you know, when you're a young girl can be quite intimidating, can be quite daunting. And actually, you know, knowing that we've all been there or that to you, your problem or your, you know, question or anything could seem quite a big thing to you individually for you Bemi I'm sure you get the same things coming day in day out and it's almost just water of a duck's back now so you know I think it's just that reassurance that as women we all go through likewise you just said about the miscarriage situation which unfortunately is so common Mm -hmm. but also I know my mum in the same instance said about the menopause you know there's not it's one of those things that people don't necessarily open up a discussion Mm -hmm. but as soon as you start talking oh, actually, yeah, well, I've had these symptoms. This has happened to me. This is my result of HRT. And exactly. it's just reminding yourself that as women, we experience a lot of the same things, maybe in different yeah. ways, but the same things. Exactly. So don't be afraid to talk. That, that would be my... Yeah, word from Duck there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you're talking open dialogue, yeah. I guess. Um, always yeah. that. So what's some of the stuff that we don't tend to hear through our GPs or at schools? So have you got any information that's crucial to us for us to be mindful of with regards to sexual health, with regards to contraception, for example? So I think, for instance, it's not even that like there are information you don't know. I think it's sometimes it's the fact going to a GP, you have like a 10 minute appointment. It's just how much, I guess, information you could fit in it's kind of knowing what other things basically you should be aware of so for instance again with contraception when I'm talking to women it's about knowing when they say the pill for instance knowing there's different types of pill there's pill with estrogen there's pill without estrogen and so there's certain women that can't have that combined pill about the importance of contraception is for preventing pregnancy it doesn't prevent STIs Um, so actually it's really important that if you are having um sex that you are still having like annual sexual health screens regular sexual health screens especially if you're not in like a long-term relationship and um, it's really important that you know your sexual health you keep yourself healthy mm-hmm. and get checked and you know you need to be having protective sex um, so if you're not in kind of a long-term relationship that you feel you can trust that relationship I would always recommend using like a barrier method as well Mm-hmm. Um, to prevent STIs because other than condoms all the other contraceptions won't prevent that for you they'll just prevent pregnancy the other thing is about the depot injection I know some people have heard about that form of contraception but again it's the type of contraception that I wouldn't recommend to young people only because um, it can delay fertility once you stop using it mm-hmm. um, so for some women it can take up to a year after they stopped using the depot to actually start ovulating again regularly. So if you haven't yet kind of started your family, completed your family and are looking to within the year or so, I would probably look at other contraceptive methods rather than using the depot for injection. Incredible knowledge. I love it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think there was a really useful kind of pamphlet that I remember being able to get, which kind of lined up all the different contraception Mm. options that explained very clearly sort of potential symptoms but also and which were kind of the short term medium term but also the long-term effects due to research and studies and you know that's what kind of helped me make my decision and I think 
you know, if if somebody's looking for something similar to that, is you know, is that something they can access quite easily through like the NHS Absolutely. website or the NHS website? But I also came across a really good uh, resource. It was produced by I think Oxford Brooks. It's it's brook.org.uk forward slash topics forward slash contraception. Okay. And again, it's it's a brilliant site. And it's got on there all the different methods of um, contraception available, gives you like frequently asked um, questions and advice about it, how to access and, and get certain contraception. And again, it just on like all pictorial, which I like. I like pictures. Mm. I'm yeah. a very simple person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it puts there, you know, the pros and cons about each different type of contraception, how effective it is. The fact that, like I said, for most of them, it doesn't protect you from an STI. And the other thing, actually, that's important to know is things like with the coil. Some people don't realise that once you put them in. So there's two types of coil, which, again, some people don't know. So there's the the coil that has um, copper. um, So the copper coil, which is the device. And then you have also the marina coil. And which is the interuterine system. And so the, the marina coil has hormones in it. So for people that don't want to have hormones, there is a, a method of contraception that they don't have to use hormones. That's the copper coil. So with the copper coil, you will, you will still have regular periods with it. Um, whereas with the marina, which is the system, you will eventually, we hope, stop having periods because the progesterone, the hormones will take over and, and it will stop you and bleeding now the only issue with it which I have to let people know which they don't realize is that for the first six months of that using that system some women do still bleed for the most part it Mm. is just spotting and by we we usually say try and stick it out for six months by six months most women have stopped spotting but by six months if you're not tolerating it and it's disrupting your daily life the great thing about it, just put it out, just go to your GP and put it out and, and try something else. So you don't have to suffer in silence as well. So if you're, really not, if you're really not getting on with a particular type of contraception. Let your GP know and then they can, you know, go back to the to the drawing board and, and have a look at other options for you. So Ray's, she's smirking at me because she knows, because uh, she's <laughs> she's clocking me because because we have you know just that kind of friendship I don't know how you get onto some of these topics but <laughs> that is that is one of the best decisions I made was switching to the that coil the exactly you're just talking about because actually as well and I think one of the things that I definitely factored in was uh, lifestyle you know so when you're quite active and quite sporty and stuff the thought of being able to not have any bleeding or anything like that absolutely incredible you know and I and actually for me the fact it was it was almost instant there wasn't if within the first six months it was literally straight but I think one of the things like I think we talked about earlier is that maybe my experience but and may suit me but that doesn't mean it's going to suit the next person and you know somebody might have a different experience so I think it's good to have that conversation with your peers because that's how you share you know you share you know what's out there but just know that it's not necessarily going to have exactly the same effect on you absolutely the good thing as well about that type of contraception is unlike some of the other hormonal ones is that it tends to act more locally in in your womb so the side effect profile of the marina coil is actually really good compared to some of the other ones so people tend to not report as much like 
painful breaths, bloating, um, and kind of hormonal mood changes with the with the coil, as opposed to the implant and taking um, uh, you know a hormonal pill. Um, so if you are really worried about what hormones can do in terms of your mood and things like that, it's the the option I would probably recommend to people because, like I said, the side effect profile tends to be a lot less mm. um, compared to the other ones. Wow, we love it. We love it. Thank you so much for all the knowledge. <laughs> Clinical teaching then, fellow at Oxford University. Talk to us a little bit more about that. How did you get into that? Because that sounds absolutely <laughs> incredible. Yeah, that's another another hat I'm wearing. Um, so essentially, I'm really, really passionate about equality, diversity, inclusivity. And I think especially in the last couple of years, it's really come to the forefront of kind of the mainstream, I guess, about how important it is. And especially working in healthcare and in particularly in obstetrics and gynecology, when we look back at kind of the origins of medical care and where a lot of our treatments and things come from, um, it's a bit of a grim past, actually. Mm. And so basically my... my um, I feel like my mission is to try and decolonize the, the medical curriculum. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I'm, so basically what I'm trying to do is just shine a light on um, things that within the medical curriculum, how we're taught and actually how that affects when people become fully fledged doctors. Mm-hmm. So my role is essentially I teach um, the Oxford medical students Mm-hmm. within the women's and reproductive health department um, so I give lectures looking at things like cultural safety so as doctors how we make sure that we are in sync with our patients so that we're open to dialogue we're understanding where they're coming from or yeah. where where you know as practitioners where we're coming from yeah and making sure those things are aligned another big thing I'm tackling is bias implicit yeah. bias the subconscious um, bias that we have we all have it but making sure that we're aware of it and actually if we're not aware of it and we jump to conclusions about certain people um it actually affects the way we give them care yeah um, and so there's lots of things out there in the in the literature that actually people that don't look like us mm. for instance have done studies we know that there's reduced empathy for them so for instance we know that for black women in labor in pain their pain is perceived as less yeah compared to white people and and that's not just anecdotal we've got studies that show when they've done mri scans of doctors seeing people different people in pain the pain is perceived as less when they're looking at black people wow so that's documented yeah so we know that that bias is heavy okay so that bias is definitely there we're not going to be able to remove it, but it's being aware of it. So it's taking mm. that extra five, 10 seconds to be like, when I'm making this decision about this patient and I'm about to prescribe them paracetamol instead of morphine, why am mm. I doing that? Is that the correct mm. thing for that patient? Or actually, do I need to give them something stronger? I, you know, so it, it's, a, it's about taking that step and understanding our biases and how that affects mm. um, the way we, we give, deliver care. Wow. And I think, I mean, that, that hits really heavy. That's that's really hard to hit. And I think, you know, again, we we know that unconscious bias is there in, in whatever sector that is, in whatever, you know, realm that might be. But obviously the example you've just given there is maybe slightly more 
covert, right? But one of the things that I remember hearing was, and I think it was around the Black Lives Matter, sort of the death of George Floyd, that people were kind of picking up on how certain industries can get better, how they can do better. Mm. And within the um, kind of clinical practice, there was um, somebody who'd noted that actually as a, um, a GP during their whole education process, it was, it was around a particular type of condition, a skin condition. Mm. And they realized they had a black um, patient come and they couldn't, they didn't know how to respond to it. They didn't, they didn't know how to identify it or how to treat it because all of the models or the videos or the images that were used within the training programs or training yeah. materials when we're all of white people mm, absolutely. so and and actually I was like I put my hand up and I I myself as a doctor my husband as a GP we failed to recognize my daughter had scarlet fever for a few days because the rash didn't look like <laughs> what we're used to seeing yeah. um it kind of clicked um until she started developing other symptoms and then we realized oh gosh she's got scarlet fever um and it's just because the rash didn't look like it usually you looked on caucasian skin Um, now there are lots of people behind trying to improve actually what you're talking about so there's a book out um i think it was developed by a medical doctor at the time so he was a student at the time i think at ucl if i'm correct um and it's called mind the gap okay that book um and essentially that is um like an encyclopedia of um pictures essentially of different skin conditions in black and brown skin so it's mind the gap a clinical handbook of signs and symptoms in black and brown skin so wow. you can get hold of that and that basically um so there are people that are tuning into that particular aspect of um the medical curriculum to improve it so um if you just type that in, you'll you'll find um, yeah images um, awesome. of different yeah conditions in black and brown skin. Incredible, yeah. We'll definitely put that in the footnotes so people can access it along with this Oxford Brooks link that you you mentioned sure. as well, Bemi. So we're gonna just take it back a little bit. If you could give yourself um, your fifteen year old self a piece of advice, it might be related to the topic we talked about today. It might not be. What would you, what would your piece of advice be? Just take risk. Failure isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe not take any risks related to like not, pro- not protection. Yeah, not, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> not that type of risk. Not that type of risk. But, but risk in terms of just like going for things, you know, because I think especially as a, a woman of colour, um, I operate in a lot of white spaces. Um you could imagine like even working in Oxford University um you know there's not a lot of people that look like me <laughs> um and so sometimes it's hard to to go into those spaces because you're not quite sure how you'll be received mm-hmm. but um I and I remember even speaking to friends at the time when I was going to apply to the Oxford Deanery to start my training in Oxford Guiding and you know a lot of people like oh you know going to Oxford is you know an area where it might be difficult for you to kind of assimilate and and progress but I found it quite the opposite actually I I found it to be a very welcoming deanery and a very progressive actually 
um, and they're very open to having this dialogue um, about equality and things like this. So it's it's been a very positive experience for me. And I think if I hadn't taken that risk, you know, and just gone somewhere where I thought would be comfortable, sure. I don't think I would have been able to have the kind of impact that I'm having mm. now um, within the deanery. So I, I think just, you know, go for it. Um, if if you want to do something and you think you're it's going to make a difference, just do it. And the worst thing that can happen is fail at it. Mm. And that's fine. Failure is fine. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. I was just going to say, I don't feel like we're taught very much about taking risks and accepting mm-hmm. that failure is okay. That is something I'm trying to instill into my, um, I've got a year seven tutor group and they come in full of life. You ask a question and if they know the answer, they're well confident, like hands up straight away. But if <laughs> me, not, miss, every- me, miss, me, yeah. miss, pick me. But if not, everyone's like, ah. Oh. And I'm like, guys, look at the word, break it down, have a guess. It's okay if you get it wrong. I'm not going to shout mm. at you. I want us to start these conversations. So it's quite interesting. It's really, really interesting. I think and it's I don't- just in the psyche of everybody. We don't like yeah. to fail, but... But it's amazing what failure does, because actually when you fail, it almost sometimes opens up other doors. A hundred percent. I'm a, even yeah. considered. Um, so I think, it, you know, it can only be a good thing. Good. Yeah, we um, with with uh, kind of in work rather than talking about we don't really use the F word, that F word. Um, <laughs> we um, we refer not- we refer to it just as learning instead so you know if we're talking if we're reviewing a project we say you know what went well and then we say or what could have been even better you know so instead of it's always like a continuously improving mindset so it's not like what went wrong it was like actually what did you learn you know what would you have done differently and you know I I think your quote your your piece of advice is so prevalent I'm sure will resonate with a lot of people who maybe have been told this space isn't for you or you know have had that glimmer of doubt in whatever it is they might be doing or wanting to do so I think it's really inspiring and just seeing you doing all of the incredible things that you're doing is so inspiring. No, I just hope I can I can uh, make a difference I'm just going to plug our, um, so me and a group of other um, black female doctors we've just put together a group called um, Black in Medicine. So you can follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially we are going to be putting on there information about different conditions that predominantly affect people, women of colour, um, so that you can make these informed choices. So that um, we're going to be having podcasts um, so you can tune into as well. Um, hopefully, you know, you can hear us discuss these conditions and, and then make the right decision for yourself. Bemi, I feel like you're made for this podcast life because you've taken my next um, point. Right, <laughs> <laughs> The next bit was for you to plug any sort of platforms that you had. But before we got there, I've got one little thing I want you I want you to do for us is sure. to share with us any songs that you're currently listening to. So any two or three songs that you're currently oh, listening to that we can put onto our Melanin and Me playlist, please. Oh, God. Do you know, as, as soon you as you said what? that, Ray, I just thought, you know, let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> oh, <my laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what I, you know what to read about, the, I, know, I don't know what people think of this, it's classical music, but it, it, I don't know if you've heard of it, but they're an all black family that live in Nottingham. Um, Nottingham, that's where I'm from. <laughs> okay, so you must know them. So they're a family of like seven and they're a black family. They're all pianists. You remember the, the celloists that played for... 
and Meghan Markle and Harry at the wedding. Okay, yeah. so his family, the Kenny Mason family. So um, Sheku, who was the guy who was the celloist, and his sister, Isita, they've just released an album. Um, it's called Muse. Um, and so it's by Sheku and Isita, um, Kenny Kana Mason. Um, and it's actually a really, really lovely album if you're into classical music. Um, so honestly, think about it. <laughs> Honestly, it's you're very gonna get inspiring. Into, look, it's very if, inspiring. if they're from Nottingham, to... Ray will listen regardless. <laughs> Honestly, Ray, you've got to listen, and and actually now I just like, I just like want my children to like play the piano and, and cello. Can I have to top album. three songs that you really <laughs> like out of there? I can't have the okay. whole album, just top three. No, no, oh, well, no, it doesn't have to be. Um, okay, it doesn't have to be the whole album. Wait there. Okay. Oh, you guys have put me on the spot now. Um, <laughs> I have, I have to like go to my um my podcast my um what do you call it Spotify playlist then and let me quickly run let it load up like the top three things I'm listening to at the moment yeah you um, right, you, you need to prep people on this this question because I would I would get stumped you know why as right. well because you know when you've got a tune in your head you don't necessarily exactly. know so on that album my favorite song on that album is called um Twelve Romances so that by Sheku and Isita Muse then the other song I'm really listening to at the moment is um the song Experience by Victoria Monet Experience. Do you know that song and Khalid Victoria Monet. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll link it to you anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, do you know what's really bad? I'm really loving Doja Cat at the moment. So <laughs> kind of, yes, um, we so, love it. Um, so I'm really loving the song Streets. I love that song. So yeah, those are probably the three things I'm listening to at the moment. Nice, lovely. You've got a big mixture there. I've got a, a very diverse <laughs> yeah. um, music. Uh, yeah, I love all kinds of music. <laughs> we love that. No, thank you very much. Is there <laughs> any other platforms that you'd like people to find out and where can they find you? Any Insta, Twitters, Facebook? So other than, like I said, Black in Medicine, which is on Instagram, is on Twitter and on Facebook. You can find us. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's the kind of thing for our, if you want advice um, to tune into about kind of health affecting women um, of colour, yeah. then I would recommend that. Otherwise, there are lots and lots on Instagram as well. Um, lots of other like doctors, um, black female doctors, dope black women that you can kind of follow as well that are um, got really good information as well, positive affirmations, all that kind of stuff for, for women of colour as well amazing did you also want to plug your um upcoming podcast as well yeah so that's black in medicine black in so medicine as well black in medicine so yeah. the, the first episode is just going to be talking about us and then it's going to be um kind of what our project's about so um tune into that that should be coming out in the next couple of weeks fortunately we've all kind of been unwell recently but uh. should be coming out in the next couple of weeks Nice one. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Femi. It's been an absolute pleasure. Loved the conversation. I was literally oh, no, thank you so you. much like, for having her. Yeah, the knowledge you have is absolutely incredible. So thank you very much for sharing with us. Thank you very much for listening, Queens. So that's a wrap on today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it and that you gained something positive from listening in. Whether that be you gained a new perspective, got some tips and tricks to motivate and inspire you, or if it just made you smile. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and leave a review so that you don't miss any upcoming episodes and so we can bring you even more of the content that you love. Until next time, stay blessed, wear that crown with pride, and keep shining.